Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. I trust you're well rested. I know you're well fed. And um, hopefully you're not too disappointed in the results of last night's football game. I know it was a late night for several of you. I know who you are because I checked your Facebook status. So I'm glad to see you here this morning. And I don't see too many bruises from um, Black and Blue Friday. It's amazing to hear the reports just after the day that we celebrate everything that we're grateful for having. We push and shove and punch for everything that we don't have. And so uh, there was a report, I think, somewhere in this area of a cop getting decked at a Walmart because they didn't open the doors fast enough. So um, hopefully this morning, as we begin to focus on the holiday season, we have the opportunity to remember the real reason for the season. It doesn't have anything to do with buying anything. That's good news. That's good news. Both at dusk and at dawn, if you're not too busy, you will hear the birds singing. Now, thankfully, they don't sing all the way through the middle of the night, right outside your window. But when the day is done and when a new day dawns, If you listen carefully, if you're not too distracted, you will hear the birds sing. And in the same way, the Old Testament era closes with song, and the New Testament era opens with song. And specifically in the Gospel of Luke, you have four, uh, some would say five, songs of praise to God, celebrating the advent, the coming, the arrival of God's promised king, our son, the Christ. And when you look at these songs, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, chapter 2, we have to ask ourselves whether these are the last of the Hebrew Psalms, or are they the first of the Christian hymns? They're a little bit of both because they're saturated with Old Testament scriptures. And so I hope this morning that as we talk about Mary's song, the Magnificat, exalting in the Lord, that we'll see that the theme of this song is not simply a young lady who's really excited to be pregnant. That's part of it. New life is a wonderful thing. But this is much more than a... Facebook status on her pregnancy. This is a song about the revolution that the gospel brings. So this morning, I hope that you will join me in prayer as we try to recapture the spirit of Christmas in a culture that seems to have completely forgotten what it is all about. Would you pray with me, please? God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to come before you. Lord, that is what we do. Uh, We're not here to parade our finery in front of our friends. Uh, We're not here to get compliments on our new hairdo or uh, whether people like our dress. We're not here to show off the spit polish on our shoes. God, we're here for an audience with you. God, I repent 
for the people that I live among that have turned this holiday season, when we talk about gratitude and we talk about the gift that you give, and yet we proclaim by our actions that we are not satisfied with your gifts. God, help us to see afresh what, what, what this holiday season is about. Help us to truly prize <clears throat> the gift of your Son. And with the gift of your Son, the gift of the gospel, let that not be something, let that not be a word that rolls so easily off of our lips. Let it be something that flows out of our hearts. And may we manifest the change that the gospel truly brings. Be with us this morning. Thank you for your word. Please add your spirit's convicting power to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 46 through 56. And there's a lot of really good context, background story to this. Uh, You know the story uh, in the beginning of... Luke, the angel Gabriel is just all over the place. He appears to Zechariah in the temple to uh, give him forewarning of John the Baptist's imminent arrival. Shortly thereafter, Gabriel ends up in the village of Nazareth. And he appears to Mary and explains that while she is unmarried and a virgin, she will conceive a child. That God will do this miraculous thing. To attest to the miracle, he says, by the way, your cousin, who also shouldn't be having a kid because she's so old, is right now pregnant with child. So you have two women, one beyond the childbearing age and one who is pure, both having children through God's miraculous agency. There's no, uh, there's no indication in the Scripture that Mary doubted what the angel had told her. As a matter of fact, when the angel said, By the way, Elizabeth is pregnant too. You know what Mary did? She packed up her stuff and she ran to go see Elizabeth. This is good news for an, old, an older lady too. That God has worked this miracle to give her a child even in her latter years. And Elizabeth's pregnancy was the down payment To say, Mary, listen, even though I just told you this, and you don't feel any different, I've created life within you. And she goes to visit Elizabeth to see that God indeed was faithful to giving her a child. Could it be that God's promise to her would come true too? And when Mary and Elizabeth meet, it's the most interesting thing. It says that uh, John was uh, was about six months old. They were about six months into her pregnancy. And it says that when the baby heard Mary's voice, he leapt for joy in the womb. It's interesting to see these two cousins, Jesus and John, and to compare them to two brothers who shared a womb, Jacob and Esau. What'd they do? What brothers do? They fought. They jockeyed for position. And here you have two new brothers, new cousins, who one was content to point his way to the one that God had promised and sent. And upon this whole visitation between Mary and Elizabeth, Mary breaks out in song, I I think perhaps in seeing Elizabeth's swollen belly, she began to realize the magnitude of everything that was happening. 
and the incredible force that was about to be unleashed is God's centuries-old promise was coming to fulfillment. And so she breaks out into song. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 50. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. I think in these verses we see our first point for us to consider this morning. And it's that while Mary saw the benefit for her personally, she put her personal blessings into the context of God's bigger plan. It was not unknown in this day and age for most of her neighbors surrounding her, not the Hebrew peoples, but other cultures, to have many gods. God of the grain, God of the rain, God of the sun, God of the rocks, God of the ocean. And when she talks about the things that God is doing for her, she's not talking about some, uh, simply some personal regional deity. She's talking about the timeless and eternal Yahweh. And she talks about how what God has done for her has made her mindful of what God has always done. She's mindful of all His ways. Listen to how she describes Him. In verse 46, He is called the Lord. In verse 47, He's called God and my Savior. You see, Mary, Mary didn't have any of these strange notions that she was without sin. On her very lips... She acknowledged that this child that was going to be born to her would indeed be her Savior. Not just your Savior, but my Savior. She calls Him the Mighty One who has done great things for me. What's interesting is this is the the essence of the look of faith. Because when she says at this point that God has done great things for me, what has He done at this point? Send an angel to tell her something. The life that is in her at this point, where's Craig? It's not even a twig. It's microscopic. And yet she has the eyes of faith to say, Whoa! God has done great things for me. And you go, show me. And she goes, I don't need to show you. Because I have the faith that God will do what? What he has done. Said, And I see that in the evidence of Elizabeth before me. It's clear she is not just talking about um, the joy, the glow that comes from normal pregnancy. There is something different here. And besides just talking about her excitement, she puts this in the context. And she wants us to know that God is at work. He has been, He is And he will be. And Mary, at this point, as a teenage girl, is simply amazed that she has the opportunity to participate in this pivotal moment in history. It would freak me out. For a variety of reasons, because I'm not a girl. But to imagine what Mary went through. Unwed 
mother, virgin, wink, wink? Yeah, I'm sure. Think about the scrutiny she would get from those closest to her. And yet she's not mindful of the shame of being an unwed pregnant woman. She is amazed that she gets the opportunity to participate in what God is doing. Now, if you read the scriptures closely, you'll see in verses 46 and 47, Mary is speaking in the present tense. She says, my soul exalts, my spirit rejoices. And then when you get to verse 48, and continuing on, the the tense changes from present tense to past tense. For he has had regard. For he has done great things for me. And you see this repetition. This song is not about her and her pregnancy. This song is about God. Her soul exalts in the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And then listen. For he has had regard. For uh, he has done mighty things for me. For his mercy is upon generation after generation. For he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down rulers from the throne. He has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to his servant. God is on the move. He'd been quiet For 400 years. But this was not apathy or laziness on the part of God, but waiting for the fullness of time to happen. Why now? I don't know. Some have conjectured that he was waiting for the Roman Empire to take over the world because they shared a common language, and they created an interstate system. And perhaps that was the fullness of time, that it would make it easier for the gospel to penetrate the world. I don't know. I don't think God's plan was the Roman Empire. I think the Roman Empire helped. But the point here is that Mary is mindful of the blessings she receives, and she puts this into a context where it is not about her at all. It's about God. And she says, it's not just me. God has been generationally faithful. This is not a new thing, but it's still startling to realize what God is doing. It has been promised. It has been looked for. It is not um, a surprise, but it is still startling. She says that God is mighty. And if she stopped there, that might be a scary proposition, wouldn't it? You go to SeaWorld and you watch the trainers with the killer whales. I mean, they're named killer whales after all. I'm not getting in the pool. They're mighty. But you know what? They've been trained. So when you're out kayaking in Puget Sound and you see a killer whale, you don't jump in with that. They're not trained. They're mighty too. But they might be mighty hungry. So watch out. But Mary doesn't stop just talking about God's might. Because if she did, that's a scary thing. God has power. But she says that God's might is joined to his holiness and to his mercy. That changes the picture, doesn't it? God's not some despot, some dictator some power-hungry guru. He is mighty, but he is merciful, and he is holy. 
So what a beautiful picture we see of God, even in these opening salvos of Mary's song. God is mighty. God is holy. God is merciful. He's a great guy. Don't you want to be on his team? Who wouldn't want to be on a holy, merciful, and mighty God's team? Sadly, the test of time is not many. Because the second thing we see in this song is that Mary recognized that God's priorities do not match man's values. God's priorities do not match man's values. Listen to verses 51 through 53. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy. If we were going to summarize God's priorities, it would be this. That God lifts high the lowly and he brings low the lofty. God lifts high the lowly. And God brings low the lofty. In verse 51, he introduces this whole concept with this statement. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. I think this is really interesting because it doesn't say his arms. It's singular. Now, what can you do with your arm? You can do some pretty fascinating stuff with your arm. What can you do with your arms? A whole lot more. A whole lot more. You can carry something. I've got small paws, so I mean, I can carry something, you know, get it in there. But I can carry a whole lot more with both of them. You know, God doesn't need both of his arms to really do anything that's magnificent. Just with his arm. And then there's this whole catalog of things. And, and I, I think in one sense, you see two categories of what God, what are the mighty deeds God has done with his arm. And so we start thinking Charlton Heston, parting the Red Sea, you know, causing comets to fly across the ground. Those are the mighty deeds. They're a little more domestic than parting the sea and causing the stars to fly. And he starts with negative things destructive things that God, mighty deeds that God has done. He has scattered the proud. Now, I think it's interesting the way that it talks about the prideful in verse um, 52. I'm sorry, 51. He has scattered those who were proud. How, How do you tell if someone's proud? Is it if they're wearing their Gamecock tie this morning? Is that how you tell that they're proud? Is it if they've got a brand new $500 suit that they're wearing to church? Is that how you tell that they're proud? Do they kind of walk with a little bounce in their step? Is that how you tell that they're proud? It might be. There are some proud people. You see it all over them. But you know what the Bible says? How you tell a person is proud? It's what they think in their heart. It's their thoughts. God's not simply going to evaluate you on mere externals. 
He's going to get down to the truth of the matter. And so you know what? If you look proud, but you're not really, guess what? You're not going to be judged. Maybe, maybe you look proud, but you're not trying to be pompous. You're not trying to be full of yourself. He scatters those who are proud in their heart. He brings the rulers down. He casts them off of their throne. He takes the rich, and they want an audience with him. Because God's got what? Power! And the rich want to be around the powerful, and God sends them away. But there's something that he does opposite to the destruction that is constructive. He scatters the proud, but you know what he does? He helps his servant. What do you have to be to be a servant? Not proud. So he scatters the proud. But he helps people who are humble enough to serve him. He's brought the rulers low. But he's exalted the humble. He's sent away the rich. You know what he's done? He's filled the hungry. We're getting a fuller picture of who God is. He's just not big and mighty and merciful and holy and up here. But he is involved in the everydayness of life. Lifting up and casting down every day. There there are people in your neighborhood and there are people at your place of employment that this week, whether they know it or not, God has either lifted them up or cast them down. It's happened. It's happened in this room. You have been the beneficiary of God exalting or God casting down. And the point of all of this, when we talk about God's priorities, God's priorities are a grand reversal. Man uses his wisdom, he uses his accomplishment, he uses his riches for nothing except his own purposes. To build his own kingdom. For everyone to know my name. And God says, friend, I gave you these gifts to build my kingdom, not yours. And when we talk about God's kingdom, this is so much bigger. Please hear me clearly on this. God's kingdom is so much bigger than simply being a good girl or good boy. Would you agree? There are lots of good girls and good boys that are going to spend eternity in hell because they don't bow in their heart before the King of Kings. That's a tough word. That God's kingdom is not simply about memorizing Scripture verses. The demons have them all memorized. They don't fear God. God's kingdom has moral, social, and economic implications. If we are truly going to be God's people, that doesn't simply mean that we show up for church. That's important because we need to be fed from God's word. We need to be encouraged by God's people. We need to be open to how God's spirit moves and helps us. But God's kingdom, this reversal that God talks about means that we live differently, morally. We don't, you know, say, I don't drink or smoke or cuss or chew or run around with girls who do. We don't just stop at some simple, naive morality. We want to glorify God with our moral decisions. We want to glorify God with how we relate to each other socially. You know what? We want to give our money to help people. That's what we do. That's the church. 
And God's kingdom has all these implications and more. In understanding God's priorities, it is a complete reversal from every human opinion on greatness and significance. As a matter of fact, the more great and significant you think you are, in God's eyes, the more irrelevant you are probably making yourself. Point number three. Mary knew that God was eternally faithful. Verse 54 and 55. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. For Mary, God's faithfulness made her faith possible. God had given her um, kind of a little mini promise. Here's the big promise, Mary. You're going to have a kid. And to prove it, you can go see Elizabeth because, man, she's big. She's got a baby too. God's faithfulness in showing that he was at work in Elizabeth made her faith It bolstered it. It encouraged it. And she saw this as God fulfilling uh, the Scriptures. All throughout this passage, it's, it's wonderful. It's kind of difficult because Mary is paraphrasing about 12 different Old Testament passages. When she sings this song, and listen, she didn't like sit down like a songwriter and go, okay, what rhymes with God? Odd. No, no, that doesn't fit. Um, She didn't sit down and try to compose this thing. Every indication is that this song of Mary's is Scripture spontaneously called to mind and poured out in her own voice out of her heart. And what comes out? Scripture! All kinds of Scriptures from the Old Testament. There are at least 12 references. You have Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1 and 2 Samuel, Hannah's Prayer, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. All those books that you don't want to read in your devotions. They're in her song. She sees God's fulfillment of these scriptures. He has made a covenant promise that he will keep. He has not forgotten. He has just been silent for his own purposes. So we ask, how in the world... Did God make the promise of Christ to the fathers? It says, He is doing this because He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever, about this, my baby. He has talked about it to everyone. How? Well, here's a quick run through Scripture. Adam, Genesis 3, 15. In the very curse where Adam's going to have to work really hard and he's going to raise up thorns and thistles in his garden. And and, um, Eve, I almost said Mary, Eve is going to have pain in childbirth. He says, uh, this serpent who has deceived you will strike at your heel, but your seed, your descendant, will crush his head. Friends, that's the gospel. Sin is real, but God is stronger. And in the book of Genesis, three chapters... End of this book, the gospel pops out in seed form. God made a promise to Adam 
that Jesus will win. Noah, Genesis chapter 6. Not a good chapter. He says, Noah, I regret that I have made man. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start over by killing everyone except for you. Because you are a descendant of the godly line. I am making a covenant with you to preserve you, to preserve the lineage that this seed will one day be born from. So from Adam to Noah, a direct line. From Noah to Christ, a longer line but still direct. There is death, but there is covenant promise. Abraham, Genesis 17. God continues this promise and says to Abraham, I will keep my promise and I will make a great nation of you and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not because of Abraham's Jewishness, but because of Abraham's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus Christ. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 22, continuing on with the story of Abraham, you remember what God tells Abraham to do? The language is haunting. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. Abraham didn't have to because he knew that God himself would provide the lamb. The gospel drips all through the Old Testament. To Isaac, when we talk about the fathers, we're talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 26, we don't know a whole lot about Isaac besides the fact of who he married and that he almost got sacrificed by his father. But in Genesis 26, God appears to Isaac and says, Friend, the covenant that I've made with your father will be fulfilled through you. You inherit the benefit of these promises. Jacob, his son, Genesis 28. In the whole story of Jacob seeing this ladder to heaven, we see that God comes to Jacob and continues this covenant to him. Deuteronomy 18. Uh, Moses, the great leader, the first of the great prophets, is promised that after him there will come a prophet like him but much greater than him, referring to Christ. And from there, it goes on to the prophets, and then to the kings, and then back to the prophets again. And after 400 years of silence, to Christ. And Mary recognizes that her moment in history, while an insignificant little girl, she has now become the penultimate act of God's redemption. In Christ. That as God has promised millennium ago, that He would be faithful. That promise He made to Adam and Eve about the one who would crush the head of the serpent is coming to fulfillment through me. Being able to bear this child. Mary rejoices because God has not just been good, God has been faithful. So Mary teaches us a lot of lessons. There's a lot of Bible and there's a lot of theology wrapped up with the things that Mary teaches us. My fear this morning for us, for, for myself and for you, 
is Mary's song is a song of gospel revolution. God is great. God is faithful. And in the middle, he turns everything about man's value system on its head. The humble are the, are the, are the ones that are really good. And the boastful, they're the guys that are nothing. Jesus talks about it all the time. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. My, my fear is that the revolution that Mary sang about in her age has become in ours a colossal dud. When you think about Christmas, do you think about revolution? Do you think about God's eternal faithfulness? Do you think about how God is at work properly following His priorities, eternally being faithful, working out His plan of salvation? Or does the God we see at this holiday come from the North Pole and simply give gifts? Oh, He he gives gifts too. They're just temporal gifts. They're things. They're stuff that will never truly satisfy, that will never quench our thirst, that will never save our sinful souls. So what do we do? What do we do with Mary's song? How do we listen to this word and act upon it? What are we to do? The answer is simple. Be His people. Be His people. Don't be the world's people. Don't be molded and crafted and shaped into the moment of the age. Be His people. If these things about God are true, we should react differently. And this that I'm about to give you is not a go-do list. Because you can go do all kinds of things. And if it's not motivated by the Spirit of God, it is of no profit to your soul. Only the Holy Spirit can provide the conviction and the power for us to change our ways. But there are a couple things that I would suggest. Listen, the the implications of a message like this are manifold. Scripture needs to chasten our reasoning. But I, I think there are four things that have spoken to me this week. And in the first, we see this in this passage, is that God desires humble service. God desires humble service. This is all throughout the story of the incarnation. God became a man. I don't know an analogy to help you understand that adequately. Maybe that would be like saying, um, a good, young, strong guy here. Blaine Mullis. He's not making eye contact with me, so I'm going to pick on him. Blaine Mullis. What would Blaine have to become to play out the analogy of God becoming a man? There is nothing in creation low enough. Blaine to become an earthworm, a grub, a maggot. That's the magnitude of difference between God and man. And yet he's humble. Mary herself, not rich and powerful. There's no you know, Robin Leach in the background doing a cameo of Mary's life you know, with a cheesy English accent talking about lifestyles of the rich and famous. It's not Mary. She's a nobody. And God chooses the nobodies of this world because they don't think they're somebody. If you want to do something for God's kingdom, you don't need to think less of yourself 
You don't need to have low self-esteem. You just need to think of yourself less. And think about God more. Number two, true godliness. True, true godliness always leads to practical righteousness. I know some people that in their desire to be holy and against everything, never do anything. Oh, I'm against this, and I'm against this, and I'm against this, and I'm against this. Well, what are you for? What are you doing with that? You see, God was perfectly holy. You're not going to out-holy God in the holiness competition. Amen? You are not going to out-holy God. But yet His holiness never prevents Him showing mercy to people who perhaps don't even deserve it. None of us deserve His mercy. God, God's, God's desire to be holy is no obstacle or impediment to Him actually doing something for people that are beneath Him. So when we talk about the reversal that this revolution brings, how are you living it out? What are you doing? I have, I have become increasingly distraught at the consumerism surrounding this holiday season. So Marcy and I have prayed very hard. We've come to some really kind of startling conclusions. Kids, we're not doing any presents for Christmas. <laughs> oh, forgive me. For, indulge me for having a dad moment. That was great. They're looking at each other. He's going, what do you mean? What do you mean? No, that's not it. Listen, there is nothing wrong with giving gifts. But if that's all that it is, parents, let me just gently say, you may have missed an opportunity to shepherd your kids. Don't make Christmas about them. We're trying really hard. We've, we've come up with a little list of just little things that we want to do to try to make the holiday about other people. How do we help the less fortunate? Uh, That guy that rings a bell at Walmart that you don't make eye contact with, we're going to drive to Walmart just to go get like a zillion dollars in coins to just kind of, you know, make his day. You know, wow, here's, it's pennies, but you know, it's like a thousand pennies, you know, and just pour it in the bucket. We don't need to go shopping, let's just go and do something. Let's find a way to feed people who maybe don't have something. But don't do that. Let's find a way to build relationships with our neighbors because they live right next door to us and we don't know their names. What can you do practically to live out this gospel revolution reversal that this holiday season is supposed to be about? Three, integrity is important to God and it should be to us as well. God made a promise thousands of years ago And despite man's disobedience and Satan's working to undo it, God remained true to his word. You have no reason to be any less faithful. God has our sin and Satan's wiles to work against to be faithful to his word. And he's given you his spirit so that you can be a man or woman of your word as well. God's truthful. And he demands that people who call upon his name be truthful too. Lastly, and I think you see this in this song in, in Mary's life, 
Hiding God's Word in your heart determines what comes out when you get squeezed. We had a holiday this week. You spent time with family, which is, ironically, at the same time, a blessing and a curse. Who among you, don't raise your hand, have said something to a family member that you wish you could take back over the last four days? There's just so little space and we're all in the same house. And it's halftime, so there's no football game to watch to distract us. What comes out when life is squeezed is what you diligently put in there. And Mary is perhaps at the most pressing time of her life. She doesn't even know how to answer the practical questions that people are going to ask her. But yet when she is squeezed, she oozes not just Scripture, but all the Scripture that most Christians don't even read today. Zechariah? Deuteronomy, Micah, Habakkuk. And it's true for you. If you hide God's word in your heart, you will react differently when adversity comes your way. People will never believe a gospel message that God's people don't believe themselves. And if the gospel is the thermonuclear spiritual power in this world, we should live differently. We should not allow the world to set the agenda for what we do or do not do this holiday. And friends, quite honestly, living with these kind of priorities, humble servants with integrity, practical righteousness, is a lot better than going around telling people that they need to call this holiday Christmas. Let's not argue about the words. Prove it with your actions. Live like Jesus. Don't wrangle with people over what they want to call the holiday. You just look like an annoying jerk. Live out what the gospel teaches. Be glad to be, have integrity because you never have to look over your back wondering what you said to someone else. Be glad to allow your holiness to drive practical actions of living out the God life. Hide God's word in your heart. So that way, it is always a constant resource for you, whether you have a Bible with you or not. Because the point of this gospel revolution, the point of this song that Mary sings, Mary's song is supposed to teach us to be able to sing a song of our own. And that doesn't mean you have to join a choir. But it means that the tune that your heart is tuned to is in line with God's heart. Friends, that is the best Christmas present that you can have this holiday season. Pray with me, please. God, I I pray that you will help us to treasure the gospel. Lord, we need to hear the gospel. That Christ came to die for sinners. We need to remember, even for those of us that have been believers for a long time, that the gospel makes demands upon us. The gospel is not just a gift, but the gospel is an obligation. 
So, Lord, along those lines, I pray for two groups of people. For those that are here today and they have not trusted the gospel. They've not believed in Christ, His virgin birth, His sinless death, His glorious resurrection. If they don't know that things are right with them and their Maker, I pray that this morning they will. But Lord, there are many more of us here this morning that have indeed believed the gospel. The challenge for us this morning is to live it out. So God, make us repenters. Help us say, you know what? I'm not living exactly the way that I need to. But your grace is more than sufficient. Your word is a more than reliable guide for me to get my life right. So God, make us a people that live out this revolution that Mary sings about. Help us not to be pathetic. Help us to be passionate for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.